All right, so David, how are you? Fine. How about you? Doing well. Uh, so really appreciate uh, being here and you having me uh, to talk a little bit. So I think I think it's important for people to hear this because you're one of the sort of few people. I think many would describe you as having sort of almost a bifurcated set of careers where you have, um, you know, you're definitely an incredibly impactful neuroscientist, but you're also a very prolific musician and you've um, been involved in so many different genres. So would you say that you were always, you know, growing up, uh, did you have a lot of different interests that you sort of were cultivating at the same time? Yeah, sure. I would. So um, what did that look like? Was that, were you first introduced to music at an early age? Uh, that kind of led you to experiment with genre? Well, I think uh, I developed a bunch of passions growing up. Uh, for a long time, I was interested, I mean, now I'm a neuroscientist, but I, um, I grew up kind of in a small town and spent a lot of time in the woods because it was mm. pretty boring yeah. out there. And so I'd spent, uh, I would learn all the plants. Oh, wow. So I got, um, a, a book by Ewell Gibbons first, and then I got some other books and tried to identify all the plants I could. Yeah. And um, so I got very interested in botany, horticulture, stuff mm. like that. Um, and this is in Carbondale, right? That's correct. Yeah. So Southern yeah. Illinois. You know it. How, yeah, do you know, yeah. how do you know Southern Illinois? John? Because uh, for the past couple of years, I was in St. Louis. Oh well, then you do really, know it. Yeah, yeah it's close. right across yeah. the river. Yeah. Exactly. And there's an SAU there, I think. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. were you um, in that kind of, you know, I guess you would describe it as more of a rural sort of uh, existence? Well, we were kind of out, out a few miles out of town. Yeah. Of uh, of the the main town, and it's still really hardly changed. I mean, you know, the coasts get more and more gentrified as people mm. move, yeah. you know, centrifugal force out of the the, the middle part of the country. Right. And, and, and so the middle part of the country's hard, hardly changed in yeah. some ways. In fact, St. Louis has been losing population, as you may know. Yeah. So, uh, uh, but we, yeah, lived, you know, not, not too far out. I mean, we had neighbors. It wasn't like we were that yeah. far out. But um, a lot of forests, a mm -hmm. lot of great places you, you could walk around. And, you know, we had maybe a dozen houses, mm -hmm. maybe more in, in close walking distance. So when does, the, when does the interest in music, when does that begin? Um, I always loved music. My, my father would play us uh, tapes, reel-to-reel -reel tapes, when we'd go to sleep at night. And then when I was um, very young, I... Um, I would listen. I listened a lot to the radio, yeah. and um, I, while all the kids I grew up with were really into rock music, mm -hmm. and I liked it, but growing up in that that part of the country, I heard a lot of blues and rhythm and blues, and yeah. I heard a lot of country western. Who were you listening? Who were you hearing? Well, rhythm and blues. Yeah. I, I would say that when I was. 12, 13, 14, uh, the local kids, uh, this, the town I grew up, Carbondale, was and probably still is a pretty segregated town. Mm -hmm. There's black and white parts of the town. Yeah. And uh, the uh, people that were really, really popular right. uh, would be Isaac Hayes. Yeah. Um, uh, kids would carry Isaac Hayes lunchboxes to school. Wow. That's how popular yeah. he was. And the older people, of course, would listen to blues because uh, most of the African-American population there came from further south. Mm -hmm. 
so and you know it's a southern illinois is pretty south i mean we're we were 90 miles south of st louis yeah. but it's still um so of course those people i'm saying of course but listeners may not know the really really popular uh of the older singers would be uh muddy waters yeah sure and Howlin wolf and Howlin yep. wolf exactly and then you know bb king yeah um uh bobby blue bland mm -hmm. So those would be some of the the uh, really ve very well known ones, and then there were a whole bunch of lesser known ones, and then R and B, of course, Al Green was yeah. was really big. James Brown, of course. James Brown. A little bit later, the OJ's yeah. uh, were 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 big. So uh, those were all people that I was listening to a lot. There was a, um, a record store in Carbondale that was run by a hippie, <laughs> and he would sell 78s for 25 cents. And wow. my best friend and I would buy those 78s, so we heard a lot of the music from the 1950s, a, a lot of the stuff from Sun Records. Yeah. Um, many years later, I got, to, I got a valuable period of hanging out with Sam Phillips, the guy that made wow. all those records. Yeah. Um, so uh, Sun and stuff like Count Basie yeah. um, took me a while to understand to tell the truth to, it took me a while to understand that period of jazz I didn't understand it immediately what what made it difficult or harder to understand um, I'll tell you you know this is going to be a funny funny thing mm. like now I for the last several decades of my life I probably would if I didn't have Duke Ellington music to listen to yeah. I'd be severely depressed but it didn't really make a lot of sense to me until I was in my early 20s and moved here. Um, I think part of it was it was just so extroverted. Mm. It just it, it just sounded kind of artificial. But you come here, you come to a big city, and suddenly you go like, no, it's not extroverted at all. This mm -hmm. is the way you have to speak here. Yeah. And this is the way that you show who you are and your identity in a place where there's a lot of noise you yeah. know it's okay to have five trombones or well four trombones i guess yeah. but five saxophones and four trumpets all blaring like crazy it makes a lot more sense and then right. you start so i think when i was young you know uh, i mean uh, the bands i would hear whether they were country or mm -hmm. or or r&b or rhythm and blues yeah. or um or rock, you know, they were usually like four or five people, you know. Right. They weren't large amalgamations quartets, quartets, of lots yeah. of people playing the hell out of something. Like the Beatles, four people, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or uh, the Miles Davis stuff yeah. I heard back then would be, you know, quintet. Yeah. Right? It would, it, and, and so the large stuff, it just took me a while to, but I think as soon as I came here, I go, oh, that's what it's about. Mm. That's why that trombone is playing that way, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, so that that took me a little while. And then for Country Western, um, I loved uh, Bill Monroe. Yeah. That really made me fall in love with mm -hmm. music and composition. What about Hank Williams? Well, I, I did, you know, and I listened, to the, I listened to the country stations a lot, especially there's a clear channel. Clear, you, you're from St. Louis, and so yeah. you know what a clear channel means that you only have one station on that frequency. So you can hear oh, it all that. over the country. Wow. So, um, you know, there's there's several of them. But the one, well, the two I'd listen to the most would be WSM from Nashville, the mm -hmm. place that has the Grand Ole Opry. So yeah. I would hear the Grand Ole Opry on Saturday nights. Um, 
and I guess they're probably still doing it. Uh, I can't imagine them not doing it because it's a big business there. Yeah. So, but I would hear the Grand Ole Opry, and so I would hear all the country classics, people like Roy Acuff, and of course Hank Williams was long mm-hmm. gone by that point, but a lot of people that played in that style. Um, and then um, the other one would be, uh, I think it was WBAP in, in, in Texas. Hmm. They had a guy named Bill Mack, who I believe just passed. Oh. Um, and uh, he was the D- the big DJ for the truck drivers. Hmm. So you'd get all that, um, you'd get the truck driving songs, but you'd also get these kind of um, songs that I think, I don't think it's inappropriate to call them this, honky-tonk songs. Yeah. Singers like Ray Price, George Jones. Yeah. Um, so that stuff was very meaningful to me. So all my friends, you know, were mostly, you know, they were listening to Deep Purple or whatever mm-hmm. the heck, and, Chicago, and Jethro yeah. Tull, and, yeah. you know, whatever. And and I liked all that stuff. Yeah. But for me, the uh, hearing all this, con- most of them didn't like country mm. and rhythm and blues uh, because uh, people, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say, people kind of identify with a particular Subsegment of society, and that's yeah. what they want to hear. And you know, they identify, they identify with it. That's they want to reinforce it. Yeah. And I've never been like that. So, yeah. um, and then uh, when I was fifteen, so my dad died when I was thirteen, and my mom was around. She remarried a guy that lived in Stores, Connecticut, which is Northeast Connecticut. So we moved there, and that's where I started listening to salsa music, hmm. particularly Eddie Palmieri, who's still my hero yeah. even now. But um, he he really made me want to be a composer. Eddie, and then many years I found out that a lot of his arrangements were by a fellow named Barry Rogers. Mm-hmm. So, I, But I didn't know that at the time because Barry, Barry's name wasn't really featured on the records. Um, so I would say that Eddie Palm, Palmieri and Barry Rogers, more than anybody else, uh, probably made me want to be a... A composer. So they were kind of like your your portal in, or almost like a guru. They then. they were they were, and and the reason for that was well. So I moved to Connecticut. And there was a big Puerto Rican population, especially oh, wow. around Hartford and and huh. in um, in, in uh, Willimantic, which wow. was very close. Uh, so uh, I listened to, you know, and they'd have these great salsa bands come in. So I also heard all this great live music, even though I was just a kid. Yeah. I heard all this great music in Carbondale, you know, classic people, Chet Atkins oh, and wow. all sorts of great people. Mm-hmm. Um, but the same in, in there, and, you know, I would hear these bands that came in from Cuba that would hardly play anywhere else, plus mm-hmm. some great rock music they had in New England back then. There's a band called NRBQ. Oh, yeah, I've heard of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they were, and they're they're still around, Uh and uh, they were astonishingly good and would play the local, the local clubs, and um, I heard Miles Davis there a few nights, and, um, but uh, I would hear the the salsa groups come in, and, uh, and that just uh, really flipped me out, but the thing that did it the most, I think, was realizing that they were all playing off of charts mm. because the other kinds of music like say say you're into r&b and uh-huh. you like stacks yeah. vault records yeah. or the philly sound or something or yeah. motown yeah exactly which you know all stuff i liked yeah very little that's written out maybe a little bit of string background or something you know but it, like it does wonder hollow notes it's, yeah all that stuff yeah. and and uh very 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 little of it just you know there'll be some you know 
um, nice string writing, but it's not really that integral to the the music. It's more like it's it's more like bringing something additional out. Um, Does that is that because they wanted more freedom to improvise, or what, what is that about? Well, it's because I'll tell you why it is. Yeah. This is kind of it's because the way all that music comes about uh -huh. is you get somebody who plays the bass and somebody who plays the drums and somebody's playing the keyboard and right. somebody playing and they all get together and they kind of make up the music together mm -hmm. and most still m most rock music most hip-hop music if you have live musicians yeah. jazz and all that is still made that way um, and then you know then I say oh we want you know, some strings would be nice on here. So I've done a lot of that. I've done a lot of yeah, string yeah. writing for for pop music and rock mm -hmm. music and so on. And usually the song's already written, and they just say, oh, it would be nice to have s some additional instruments here. Yeah. So you're kind of like icing on the cake, but you're mm -hmm. not really, you're not part of the inner structure of the music. And then listening to Paul Murray and Barry Rogers, yeah. I realized, no, that's not true. Here you have to have somebody, I mean, the horn horn parts... The horn and the ways the horns and the piano and the drums are, are working together, you all have to, you know, it has to, there really has to be somebody like a Palmieri or a Barry Rogers to like put this all together right. and then people can embellish. Otherwise it's too chaotic and disorganized? You, you just couldn't do it. Yeah. I mean, so, the, the, I mean, it all comes from this kind of, you know, traditional music where it is more like what you're saying everybody's got a part and ultimately I guess it goes back to West Indian drumming hmm. where everybody has a part but even there they have a master drummer yeah even the Yoruba tradition has a master drummer you know the person who can kind of tell the other people what they ought to be doing and will be d doing more of a kind of an improvisation on top of everybody else playing a more standard thing so e even there you have to have somebody says okay we're gonna start we're gonna stop we're gonna yeah. go to these different sections so uh, that was a difference yeah. that I heard. And rather than, even though I'd already been playing in school orchestras, uh -huh. uh, viola, you know, stuff like that, yeah. um, it just, uh, that seemed, you know, I like classical music, but it just seemed ancient. Hmm. It seemed like this is classical music, is stuff from hundreds of years ago, and it's not, contempor it's not contemporary. There's no reason to make it anymore, hmm. uh, except as a museum kind of thing. You know, Mozart's, music is still beautiful so yeah. let's play it but it's like educational it's not a living thing it's a museum thing and uh, was jazz like the modernist response to that that feeling of archaicness of well I didn't know that at the time but yeah, yeah sure 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 it was um, yeah so that's uh, uh, the, the, the salsa people and specifically Paul yeah. Murray because there were a bunch of them I listened to Ray Barreto Willie Colon all that uh, a lot of the New York salsa and so on, but um, it was really those people, it was mostly Palmieri and now I know Barry Rogers, who were writing these charts where, you know, you had to have that or just the, that music wouldn't have, it wouldn't have advanced yeah. because you'd never come up that with that purely through improvisation. So you're learning the viola, but when do you when do you sort of I don't know if graduate is the right word, but when do you get to the violin? Well, I kind of put it aside because, uh -huh. um, like I was saying, I mean for a couple of reasons. But one was it just seemed like, um, as a kid in the Midwest, it just didn't seem to have any anything to do with the the living world of music. Hmm. So I started playing guitar. Yeah. And because I was a bluegrass fan, at least a Bill Monroe fan, yeah. I started playing the banjo. 
And the way I really got into it was I bought a record by John Hartford, mm -hmm. and he had this violin player named Vassar Clements. Mm. And uh, he he just became absolutely my hands over, you know, just my favorite fiddle player. Sort of my favorite fiddle player of all time, I'd have to say all these years later. Yeah. Probably still, Vassar is still probably my favorite. And it just knocked me out. And, and, and I said, okay, I'm gonna pull, I pulled out the, the old viola and tried to learn everything on that record. It's called Steam Powered Airplane. Mm. I have the idea that a lot of people did. And very soon after that, because my mom decided to buy me a present for my birthday, so I'd probably have been 13, 14, yeah. maybe 15. Mm -hmm. And she bought me a record by Stefan Grappelli and Stuff Smith. Now, she didn't know who they were, but she just went to the local record store yeah. and said, who, who were good by, and the, you know, I have to owe it to this faceless record <laughs> store yeah. guy yeah. who gave me that, and I, that blew me away. Stuff Smith, and then Grappelli, uh, boy, that was just astonishing. Mm -hmm. So that really got me into, that really got me into playing the violin. And then when do you start getting deep into, um, I mean, I guess they used to call them combos at some point, but uh, bands and, and playing with other people. I started that when I was really young. Okay. So um, my first my first gig, which is kind of as astonishing uh, to me, I was 15 and I, I opened up for Muddy Waters. What? Yeah, my <laughs> very first gig I ever played. Come on. Yeah, or at least the first one that paid. Yeah, and, and that was in um, Coventry, Connecticut. Wow. So Muddy used to tour constantly. Yeah. It's it's kind of like people don't do that like they used to. Muddy would be on the road all the time. Yeah. You could, it wasn't hard to see. I saw Muddy Waters many times. Wow. Yeah, and I saw Sun Ra many times. I, I realized at some point I saw Sun Ra over 40 times. Mm. I used to see George Benson all the oh, time yeah. before he was, you know, big pop star yeah for three dollars you know <laughs> yeah um and so uh th they're used to just i mean there's still a lot of live music but not like there was yeah i mean there were there were just you could hear incredible music all the time of course in new york you still can yeah but it's not like it's not like cbs being bad like well like cbs was its own thing because yeah. you had five bands a night right uh -huh. i mean it's really turning over the bands yeah you know um so uh but yeah, but you're right. Even in New York, in in you know twenty, thirty years ago, uh, forty years ago, all that the, there there were in the Lower East Side. Uh, what you know, there were a lot of places. I mean, you could hear, you could walk from one club to the other and hear many different groups play. You still can do that a little bit, uh -huh. but not so much. And you know, you can do it. I think a little bit in like Bushwick, but. I don't think quite as much. Well, you had a spot at the Cornelia Street Cafe, right? I did, for, yeah. For, I, I, I ran a... From 12 a, to 19, right? So. That's right. I ran a series with Roald Hoffman for... He called it Entertaining Science, and it's yeah. supposed to be the first science cafe. What so, was the what was the kind of um, the conceit behind that? Well, Roald, who's a Nobel Prize winner in chemistry from oh. Cornell, um, <clears throat> he uh, he's also a poet and a playwright, mm -hmm. and he was always been interested in the arts, so... Um, he started it. He went to uh, the Cornelius Street, which is unfortunately is now closed. Yeah. So it was run by a fellow named Robin Hirsch. Robin ran it for 41 years, if you wow. can imagine that. And he really put that place together. And yeah. it was sort of, um, even though it was after the era of the beatniks, it was still sort of the classic artsy 
artsy hang in the villi village. This is yeah. the kind of thing that you think Greenwich Village ought to be. Yeah. There's uh, somebody interesting to read about hmm. uh, is Romani Marie. Okay. Yeah. She she was a woman, Marie's Crisis. Her yeah. last restaurant is still there. It's a fantastically good piano bar. Where, but, where is it? Um, that's on uh, like Grove near Seventh. Okay. Uh huh. And uh, they have a piano bar, and they get it's astonishing. They get really really professional, like Broadway type singers on their nights off singing around the piano. And it's 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 mind blowing. Speaking of beats, because you brought them up, yeah. I mean, didn't you crash like a talk by Burroughs? You've you been doing, of, you've been reading all my. You kind yeah, of it, it, had yeah. your uh, your mind blown a little bit about yeah, addiction yeah. and thinking about your father and smoking and the tobacco company. Yeah, I, I I did um, kind of meet the surviving beats a yeah. bit. Um, I was around Ginsburg yeah. and around Burroughs. And and Kerouac, did you ever? No, no, Kerouac yeah. died before I, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Before I was yeah. around there. Yeah. Um, Ann Waldman is, is still oh. around. Yeah. Uh, she, you know, she's younger than they are, but she's she was part of that. Um, and uh, I, I think I might have met Corso, but I, I can't really remember. I think I did. Uh, but mostly, I guess I was around uh, Ginsburg, yeah. Orlovsky. Um, what were they like? What was it like to be around? Um, well, I mean, I think Ginsburg had a really good soul. I think he did. But he was also very, um, he's very, con I mean, he was always talking about himself and his friends. Yeah. Sort of the way he writes. Right. And, and um, you know, it was a little... Yeah, a little too much. It was a, it, it was a little hard for me to have a conversation. Mm -hmm. I found that with a few people that are, are sort I won't mention any other yeah. names, but, but people that are kind of myth makers about themselves. Yeah. It's like they have their thing, that's what they talk about, and right. moving them onto a real interactive conversation can be difficult yeah but I, but I think he was a, 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 a good person and yeah. he would throw his weight behind things that he thought like protests and demonstrations and, and things that he thought were important he, he would make sure that he would be part of that so I think he I think he was a good person it's just I my conversations with him maybe didn't go very far so how is the how while you're playing music and mm -hmm. you're getting exposed to these people how mm -hmm. is the neuroscience how is that element of your career developing I mean because you went to college in Michigan right I did um, well for one thing I realized um, first I wanted to study plants and yeah. I was going to get I, I was going to get a PhD at UC Davis uh -huh. and that was a year this is like in the 80s yeah and so they uh, the California had this uh, terrible. Uh, there was a, there was a big recession in the eighties. Right. I'd say around eighty three. Yeah, and they lost my stipend, so I couldn't go oh, to wow. graduate school. Ugh. Well, they said we want you to come anyway, but you have to take out loans. And yeah. I was like, I, I, nobody's going to give me a loan. I yeah. have no income at all. Yeah. Um, and so uh, so I moved to New York because mm -hmm. I had a friend here, and I was curious about New York through because of being a musician anyway. And I did all sorts of odd jobs, yeah. and I counted, I believe I counted that I played in a hundred different groups wow. the first year I was here, and then, and I was just, all the time, I was either bartending or making yeah. coffee, or yeah. I worked in an industrial testing lab for a little bit, uh -huh. or playing music, like, all the time. You know, I'd hardly see 
the apartment at all. Yeah. I was just constantly working and yeah. trying to get by. Yeah. And uh, I applied to graduate school and, and got in. And, yep, yep. Yeah. And then, then um, um, after I started grad school, I um, they made all the new students take court. This was these people are long gone, but the department chair back then was a well-known um, molec- early molecular biologist named Cyrus Leventhal, mm-hmm. and there was another important, you know, very well-known at the time. Uh, you know, a fellow that did important work yeah. uh, named Sherman Baychuk. And and they had decided that they were the co-directors of the department. And they decided that all the grad students had to take several courses, and one of them was neuroscience. Wow. And so that's when I that's when I said, oh, okay, I guess I, I can do this. It's true that I, before I was primed to be interested in it. But frankly, I didn't, you know, I mean, if you hear William Burroughs talk about drug addiction, yes. you know, you're not really learning any of the science. You're yeah. more learning an impressionistic right. version of what it might mean for him and society. Yeah. So then how do you get in touch with uh, Otto, was it Otto Lunig? Yeah. Uh, yeah, because he was, I mean, um, I think he uh, maybe inspired um, some of your work with Vonnegut, right, in terms of, I don't know. Maybe I mean, indirectly. Yeah, like because he would do these spoken word almost renditions um, to, you know, using words uh, of like Geeti and Walt Whitman, like all mm-hmm. these poets, mm-hmm. uh, kind of using that as a mode for almost making music. So mm-hmm. was that something that influenced you heavily? Well, I think Otto as a person influenced me a lot. Uh-huh. He, he's just really a good, kind, intelligent, open-minded person. Yeah. And very encouraging to, to many, many people. That's so many students. So uh, when I met him, I was going to grad school here. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I, I would do a radio show on, as a DJ on WKCR, which is oh, wow. the, the Columbia radio station. Mm. And so... Um, I would bring in guests, and I had many, many guests. And yeah. at one point, I brought in Otto for his 80th, 85th birthday. Wow! And and about the same time, a fellow named Vladimir Usichevsky for his 75th birthday. So I, I got to meet them. Wow. Well, in the meantime, I I had my string quartet. I had put together my string quartet mm-hmm. a few years, uh, maybe a couple of years earlier. Yeah. And uh, we, and I was composing for it a lot and I was saying well you know the funny thing for me here is that uh, I'm writing stuff that's really very much in the European classical tradition in a lot of ways even though it's got a lot of stuff from outside of that Um, so uh, but I don't really know the tradition I studied composition a bit with Roscoe Mitchell yeah yeah. but but Roscoe sorry saxophone yeah he plays sax yeah. yeah so um and he's great, you know, but we would play Bach, you know, and, and mm-hmm. that would be it for the, and then we would just skip to Charlie Parker. That's, yeah. you know, so um, I said, yeah, but what about all this other stuff? You know, a lot of my stuff is coming from, from Haydn, you know, mm-hmm. from, and, 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 you know, Russian composers and French, mm-hmm. you know, and all this. And it's not really, I, I don't feel like I have a great grounding in it. Mm-hmm. So I went to, uh, I went to, uh, you could walk in, I think you can still do this, I was a walk-in student at Juilliard. I just went, wow. I took some, I, I went to Juilliard and they, they do a little interview with you mm-hmm. and they and they said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want, a, I want a composing teacher. And so they gave me a fellow named uh, Jeff Langley, a very wow. nice guy, and he helped me quite a bit. And then he said, 
after taking a lesson with him, I think once every two weeks, for, I don't know, maybe four or five months, he said, okay, I think you're ready to graduate to a more, uh, a big a big shot, to work with a big shot. And so he, he wanted to put me together with one of the professors at Juilliard, who mm-hmm. I just, for kindness, I'm not going to mention that yeah. person's name. Yeah. And, and I just thought, oh, you know, this is one of the famous Juilliard composers, yeah. and I just couldn't stand that person's music. It was really? just so boring mm. to me, to me personally. And so um, I said, okay, but it's a good idea to, to do this. So, yeah. um, so I guess I just asked Otto. I said, look, I really need a coach. Wow. And so he never charged me a penny, and he would just say, okay, what we're going to do, because he was 85 when I met him, wow. and he'd already been retired. But he was the right person for me in some ways. First, you know, he was... When I say he's open-minded, so if you hear, hear a lot of Otto's music, you're going to say, well, this is a little kind of not very adventurous and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But then he co-invented the synthesizer, which wow. is still here. Yeah. It, it's actually still on 125th Street at Prentice oh, wow. Hall. Mm-hmm. It's a whole wall. Mm-hmm. So he and Usachevsky, Babbitt, and RCA invented um, the synthesizer. Wow. And uh, he and, and Vladimir were the first people... He kind of tied with Les Paul, the guitar mm-hmm. player, yeah. but to do tape music, you know, music composed using tape. Right. And then there, there were some French people, Pierre Schaeffer um, is the classic, who, who were doing this simultaneously in France, and Stockhausen was doing it, you know, something similar in Germany. But, you know, making music directly with tape, um, so by splicing it and overlaying it and yeah. stuff like that. So they were also very adventurous. Um, so, um, yeah, that was a, just really a great relationship, and I kind of knew him over the next 10 years and, wow. until he died at the age of 95. So he was your mentor? He was my mentor. I'd yeah. say my two composing mentors were Roscoe Mitchell and, uh, and Otto Luning, and a bit Jeff, the fellow I mentioned at, at Juilliard, but that, you know, that yeah. didn't last all that long. And then would you say, was Sequence Girls your first kind of record with a string quartet? Um, it was the first one of my own music with yeah. the string quartet. We we uh, did a couple piece. Uh, we made a couple records before that with Lower East Side people like Elliot Sharp. Yeah. Elliot writes very aggressive noise music. It's it's yeah. not the only thing he does, but it's one thing he does. So I think that might have come out beforehand, and one or two other things. Because uh, that I mean that uh, that opens with Five Little Soldiers, which is really um, uh, monsters. Yeah, 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 really chaotic and really kind oh. of a little bit, right? A little bit kind of. Uh, I don't you remember what it starts side. with, but it might have it started almost, with that. Honestly, it kind of reminded me of uh, Enter Sandman by Metallica, just knowing oh, yeah. the tone that it had. But then oh, you sure. go from that, you go to If I Had to Give, mm-hmm. which is a lot calmer, and I kind of see that um, transition happen, like sometimes very pronounced in a lot of your work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even in the rock band as well, mm-hmm. um, and then also in that hip-hop group mm-hmm. with the kids. Which yeah. is, I mean, do you, do you kind of deliberately, is that a deliberate choice in terms of wanting the listener to kind of, you know, drift from one side to the other in a more sort of significantly pronounced way? Is that part of the uh, intent? Often, but yeah. not always. Yeah. Yeah, but sometimes, yes. How does the rock band happen? The Kropotkins? Oh, the Kropotkins? Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, I was running... Okay, I would say it was kind of three steps. Okay. So I used to run the house, we, we called it the house band, uh, at, the, at the bitter end. Yeah. And, uh, and so I did that just before the string quartet, and um, I had some great 
players in the band. Uh, one is Roy Campbell, mm-hmm. uh, wonderful trumpet player. Yeah. Uh, but so the uh, Jeff Blythe, who was from from Dexy's Midnight, he's a founder of Dexy's Midnight Runners, and then he was he ran the horn section for Elvis Costello. Oh wow! So we had some really, you know, we had some yeah. very good players. Yeah. But uh, Dickie Dworkin on drums, who's from Alex Chilton and the Microscopic mm-hmm. Septet. Yeah. You know, we had good people. Wow. But um, uh, we would rehearse always with the guest musician, hmm. and and then I'd, we'd do the gig, and then everybody just would overplay, and that it just it, to me it just like it wouldn't matter what I did. I, hmm. I uh, you know, Miles had Miles Davis had a way to make everybody listen to each other, and and you know be quiet and listen but I just I, I guess I don't have that kind of charisma to be able to do that that kind of control and and so I just said you know I think I'm gonna have to start writing everything out because mm. it's the only way I can get you know the music played properly uh-huh. let's start the string quartet because I would write out every note even for the drummer yeah and we had also we had great players and the drummer was the drummer from Lou Reed, yeah. uh, Michael Sikorsky, and, yeah. and, uh, and that's not all Michael did, but we had very good people. Uh, but I would write everything out. Well, um, one thing I was trying to do then was work in all this blues that I, like we're saying, um, I, I'd always loved, I grew up listening to. And so I'd do, do that, but it's very hard to get people from with classical backgrounds to play blues properly. The only way we could get it done, we did it a little bit on some songs, was I'd bring the original record to the uh, rehearsal and just play it and we'd go back and forth until we could get the phrasing right. Is that because they're too rigid and disclassical? They just, they're reading off the page. Mm. And and so they're just reading like that's a quarter note, you know, but it's not really a quarter note. It's really part of a whole sung phrase or... Not seeing the big picture. There, there's so much subtlety, yeah, because yeah. you know blues lacks the harmon- harmonic changes of the European classical tradition. You're not you're not going to hear a lot of WC chord changes, right? But what you're going to get is a subtlety yeah. in in the melodies and the rhythms that you can't you can only approximate with notation. Can't really get it. Right. So nobody's really going to be a great musician in that tradition without a lot of listening and playing along and that kind of thing. And when I played in a, a uh, R&B band in Florida, the, the guy who ran it, Barney Hendricks, who was Jimi Hendrix's cousin. Wow. So Barney said to me and uh, I guess the bass player, he said, you guys need lessons. And he mm-hmm. brought in a guy named Foots. Uh-huh. So Foots played um, uh, piano and he just had us. He 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 played the simplest down home northern Florida blues you can possibly play, and just would. This is what you do. This is not what you do. You yeah. know that kind of thing. Yeah. So I mean, you really have to. You have you have to do your homework. Yeah. To to do that stuff, and it's one reason that people often don't play in that style very well. I mean, there's some great people, but like my friend. Uh, 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 Liddell Macklin plays it mm. beautifully, but he grew up with Buddy Guy. 
yeah. you know so yeah. uh, he, he's got it you know yeah and, and a lot of traditions are like that you can't you can't just read it off the page so um part of the Kropotkins I, I would say came from I just got frustrated without with not being able to play that music appropriately and then one night I I heard uh Lorette Velvet, the singer, yeah. um, at this place on Houston Street. It's called the Bank. Wow. It used to be Jasper John's uh, studio. Mm-hmm. It used to actually be an old bank. It's yeah. still there. It's a club now. I, the name's changed. And uh, I heard her play there, and I said, "Well, here's somebody that really." I could tell by the way she sang. She really knew it, and they knew what we were talking about and then later you know when I met Lorette I realized oh that's because she's been backing up Jesse May Hempel and she's been hanging out with Arthur Turner and, and also all the these Panther people. Burn stuff the Panther Tate Burns Valco, yeah. exactly yeah. you you have a deep knowledge of that <laughs> and that's great so um, so yeah so yeah. I, I, I found her and then you know I asked some of the other people especially Jonathan Kane, who is kind of my oldest friend I guess mm-hmm. and 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 uh, uh, who grew up playing blues and and uh, and listening to blues and um, so we we were able to put that together. But the thing that really the the day I decided is really two things. One was I was on tour with John Cale, yeah. so I used to run, you know, I used to run John's band, which was uh, John on piano and vocals, my string quartet. So I'd write all the arrangements, and then sometimes we'd have a couple of singers. We might have Taye Giroux, mm-hmm. who's a wonderful singer, the late uh, Jimmy Justice, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, we would, uh, you know, we'd do these tours, and, and the tour would be with two enormous buses mm-hmm. going on all the autobahns and everything. You know, like, one bus really was just for a Bosendorfer piano. Wow. <laughs> because they're so big, yeah. you know. And, and, and the PA systems and all that. And the other one, you know, for the musicians. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we were playing in Stuttgart, mm-hmm. and there was a, a Japanese bluegrass band playing. And all they had were these little cases, and they pull them out, and they start playing, and they yeah. play beautifully. Yeah. And I thought, isn't that great? You can do this music Simplicity. with... You don't need a PA system. Yeah. You just play. But I didn't want to do bluegrass, because, you know, I, I love Bill Monroe. I love... Stanley Brothers, you yeah. know, but uh, it's it, I don't I felt the same way that I did about classical music. You know, what about uh, what about hip hop? Because in your um, you know in your book you talk about uh, I think at the beginning you talk about Public Enemy and mm-hmm. kind of using uh, what they you know what these guys had access to like drum machines. Um, I mean, do you was there a kind of a rawness that you wanted to also kind of create in your music that you didn't necessarily see at that time? Uh, Certainly, and yeah. and I always felt bad that I wasn't, because I I came up during hip hop, yeah, and I even knew some of those people, mm-hmm. and so my first record, Sequence Girls, that's named after an early hip hop group, which wasn't early then, because oh, it was it is a group called Sequence, mm. which uh, the one of them, one of the three women became a star. I can't remember her name right now, mm-hmm. but it's a you know if you're into hip hop, she's yeah. a big you know early star. Um, and so I, I, that tune, Sequence Girls, is kind of based on one of their raps. Wow. So, uh, and then I, I was working with a guy from 
Kid Creole and the Coconuts, and we were doing what was supposed to be the first hip hop musical yeah. at, wow. with uh, at the Public Theater. Hmm. It had these names are forgotten unless you're in early hip hop. It had Mr. Freeze hmm. and Futura 2000, wow. um, some early people like that. Uh, the choreography was Lori East Side, like Lower East Side, but yeah. Lori East Side. She was yeah. also the choreographer for Kid Creole and the Coconuts, um, and so. We, we were going to do that. That was with my old, another mentor who I miss very much, Giorgio Gamelski. Mm. But Giorgio had a fight with Joe Papp, the guy that ran the music. Anyway, when, so I, I'd, and then I kind of tried to resurrect this because I became friendly with the Soul Sonic Force. Uh, Africa Bambata, who yeah. started that, actually named hip hop. Yeah. I even had him here to the lab. Wow. You know, so, I mean, but, that, you know, so that whole time, like Rick Rubin was yeah. doing stuff at NYU and all that, and I was Run going DMC, like, yeah. how come I'm not working with the hip-hop people? Mm. I, I think, in a way, I, I really should, because you know, I could give them stuff that they can do. What The only thing that I can think of is that, um, so Tommy Silverman from Tommy Boy Records yeah, used yeah. to use the same studio I used. Wow. And so one day I'm listening to a brand Nubian record, mm -hmm. and there, there's my sonata, my duo sonata for violin and cello. <laughs> I'm Come hearing on. it yeah, wow. on the brand Nubian record. It's a loop, you know. And it's I go like, good. that's it, you know. Tommy just because they had a copy of the CD at the at, at, at Acme Studios, he pulled it down and he, he sequenced. You know, people say like, well, you should get money for that. I'm like, no, I'm wow. so happy that one of my pieces on wow. on a classic hip hop record. A slick Rick used to come in, and you know, mm -hmm. I was always trying to figure out. I mean, Tommy Silverman was there. I mean, you know, he he did Tommy Boy. He yeah. Well, along with Sylvia Robinson from from uh, right across, you know, Sugar Hill. Right. Uh -huh. I'm, I'm looking. I'm looking across the Hudson because that's where her place was. Yeah. You know, they're the they were the people that had the first the, hip -hop the, song. the first yeah. hip hop record labels. Uh, so um, I always felt like I should be working with them, and I never figured out how to do it. Hmm. I never figured out how to become to really collaborate with people from that tradition. We became very close again about 10 years ago mm -hmm. with Soul Sonic Force and the, uh, what, what, are they, what does Bambata call his big social club? The Zulu Nation. Oh, yeah. yeah. But then, it, you may know about it, it's no mm -hmm. reason to go into it, but things kind of did, did not, they had issues. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, it's just, a, I've always been very frustrated by that. You know, I grew up, by growing up, I don't mean when I was a, yeah, uh, a young yeah, kid. Yeah. I mean, in my twenties, you know, like hearing, you know, the new th Grandmaster Flash thing yeah. would come out, and I could go to Danceteria and be around these guys and yeah. and meet them because uh, my mentor Giorgio was a buddy of all these people, and so I'd meet them. I'd do a little bit of stuff with them, and I never really, I never figured out how to be do that, and I always felt like you know. I could bring in some stuff that might be kind of interesting mm -hmm. for creative hip hop people. So that's that's been um, the kind of a frustration I've always had. But the hip hop rascals, you had that right. I mean, yeah, I'm very proud. I'm super proud yeah, of that I record. I like that record. I mean, that uh, I want candy. Yeah, isn't that beautiful? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's really it's kind of um, it's interesting. I mean, you almost have like uh, 
that simplicity of public enemy and you have that rawness uh, mm. but then you also have this kind of almost prog rockish beat that's underlying everything which makes yeah but really the kids actually yeah. made the beat now they didn't know how to make the beat so I'd bring in garage band which was new at the time yeah. and say this is how you do it this is how you make a beat I bring in a little synthesizer and garage band and we'd always start with a beat and they'd never done it before and they wrote they wrote I they wrote every beat on the record yeah. uh, two of them Two of the songs were by my, my nieces, so they oh, weren't wow. at the school. Mm. But, it's, but, he, but my nieces wrote the beats then. And then um, everybody else was at this school on East 106th Street, and, and they, all, they wrote all the beats, they wrote all the records, and, and I coached them and mixed it. Yeah. Mixing is, a, as you know, in, in that kind of music, uh, mixing is, Big is if you don't mix it, you don't have anything. So mixing is important. You've worked, I mean, in the Kropotkin sort of realm uh, mm. with a lot of incredible people. Um, I mean, John Kill, you work with a lot. You've yeah. arranged for John Kill, too, right? I, I worked with John for six years. Yeah. What is that guy like? I mean, is he, because um, I, I love Velvet uh, and all yeah. that stuff. And you had Mo Tucker in your band well, as well. Well, we're going to do, the eight, and next month, we're going to do the Lou Reed 80th birthday concert oh, wow. at the Bohemian National Hall we, with mm-hmm. the plastic people of the universe. The, um, I don't know if you know them, but the, oh, they were a Czech group. Yeah. And, and uh, they, they kind of started the Velvet Revolution, which was the overthrow of, you know, the first the Czech government and, mm-hmm. and began the dissolution of the Soviet Union, really. Yeah. And that, that uh, one reason, and people don't say this, but one reason it's called the Velvet Revolution is they were such big Velvet Underground fans. Oh, wow. And uh, so we're going to do Lou Reed's 80th birthday with his his uh, you know wife Lori Anderson s- singing on it, and then the bass player from the Plastic People, and then mm-hmm. Jonathan and, and uh, who I mentioned Jonathan Kane and me, and a, a great guitar player named Ava Mendoza, and a couple other people they're bringing in from the Czech Republic. Wow! So. Uh, still doing a little tiny, tiny, tiny bit of Velvet-related stuff, but, but for years I was doing. I was, yeah, I would get up in the morning. I go like, oh no, more Velvet-related stuff. Now I now I'm really happy I did it, of course. But at the time I was going like, oh no, I have to do another. You know, <laughs> but yeah. not, it's uh, it's not that I didn't love the Velvets and and Kale and and Mo and all that. It's it's just that uh, I felt like, am I am I starting to become like, like a super fan yeah. rather than a creative trying yeah, to you know create yeah. my own yeah. ideas yeah yeah but then um you also arranged a lot i mean um yeah. and for film too like mm-hmm. basquiat right? You, right you did the score for that well uh john wrote okay for basquiat it's kind of a it's a slightly embarrassing story so okay. um so uh the director who's a famous artist Schnabel, uh, yeah. julian schnabel yeah. c- called me and asked me to work on it and I said, Julian, I'll do it, but I'm getting a little frustrated working with, with movies. And, oh. you know, you have to, you know, in the contract, you've got to put me down as the arranger if I'm going to do all this work. Because also the money was, for me, was terrible. Mm-hmm. I mean, the money was terrible. So yeah. I was just like, so at least you got to put me down as a ranger. Oh, yeah, no problem. We'll do that. And then I worked with John Cale, who wrote yeah. a lot of stuff. And like a lot of... Uh, now Schnabel is really a good filmmaker. Yeah, he's really, really good. Yeah. But this is the thing that happens with filmmakers. So they use what they call sc- sc- scratch tracks. Right, right. We fell in love with the scratch track. Oh, really? Yeah. There's very little, hardly any, if any, 
of our music on Bosco. Is that it's all the, stuff that he he you know found. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. And uh, uh, so I did a lot of work on it. We did a lot of recording, but uh, and I don't have the recordings or anything. Um, you know, they just kept them at the studio, I guess. Mm. Uh, so I ended up not doing. I did a lot of work on that particular movie, which is a very good movie. Yeah. Uh, but. Uh, I don't know if you hear any of my music at all. Um, I shot Andy Warhol's very yeah. different. It's, that's all. That that's was all movie. John's. Uh, you know, he would write the music on the piano, give it to me, and 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 I would score it for orchestra or strings or whatever. How did you get involved with the Thai elephant? Thing? I mean, that whole experience. Yeah. Um, well, I'd, I'd become friends with these painters, Komar and Melamed. Yeah. So these... Uh, they're Russians, right? They're Russians, yeah. but they live here. Yeah. And uh, they like to do conceptual kind of art, in yeah. a sense. And the concept there was uh, elephants are out of work. Let's teach them to paint. We know elephants can paint. Yeah. This was kind of discovered... Vitaly Komar will tell you. It was originally r realized about the time of uh, uh, early, uh, early 20th century in the Berlin Zoo. Um, uh, oh my God! What's the name? Kandinsky. Mm -hmm. Kandinsky saw some uh, elephants drawing, wow. um, and and Vitaly is convinced. Although you never know what he really thinks, because he's putting you on all the time. <laughs> but he might actually really think this. He yeah. thinks that Kandinsky's art was actually influenced by this elephant in the Berlin Zoo. He really wow. does. So then, you know, many years later, um, there was. A fellow who was the elephant trainer, and I think in the Cincinnati Zoo or the Cleveland, whose name is Don Red Fox, yeah. and he noticed that one of the uh, one of the elephants was bored and was drawing with a stick. So he gave him, he gave uh, her name was Renee, so he gave Renee paints, and R Renee started painting. Wow! <laughs> and so they said, well, elephants can paint. So they went to Thailand, as sort of a you know kind of a partly. You know, they were going to make fun of modern art, but partly out of real sense of conservation. Mm. You know, and we'll teach the elephants to paint, and it's a way they can make a living. Because the elephants in Thailand, I know this sounds strange, but they, they're domesticated, and they all worked huh. in the logging industry, oh, right? Wow. There's about 3,000 uh, wild elephants, but there are over 3,000 domesticated elephants. Wow. And they all lost their jobs, and, you know, they, they, they had to have a way to have income for food. Yeah. So, um, and uh, I know that sounds like I'm no, pulling your leg, but I'm not. <laughs> yeah. And um, so they said, well, well, we'll teach them paint, they'll sell their paintings. Uh -huh. And so they went to the Thai Elephant Conservation Center, which yeah. was part, put in part together by Richard Lair, an American who's now lived there for about almost 50 years. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so they, they, they taught the elephants to paint, and now you can buy elephant paintings all over Thailand. Wow. Um, and... Uh, and, and really through that, you know, I'm leading the story a little bit, but it's really through that that I, I met Richard. Richard invited me uh, over, and we built giant instruments for the elephant, because he told me they also like listening to music. Yeah. And you're there, and they're you know, like, how, how do you know elephants like listening to music? Because if you're around elephants enough, you, you realize they like listening to music. Yeah. And, um, and so we built giant instruments, and some of them uh, really enjoy playing. So that's that was the beginning of the Thai Elephant Orchestra. We did that also for six years, at which point it became 
politics really runs Thailand. It's it's mm. a very very politically intense place, yeah. and we had that little period in there where it was really possible to, to do that. It's four oh one. Do you have uh, like three or four minutes, or do you want sure? To no, we can. Because we we have to talk about. I would be remiss if I didn't talk about the guided by voices. Because mm -hmm. because you're a fan. Yeah, they're an incredible brand. That isolation drills uh -huh. record. Because we were talking about the. You're the first person has ever told me that. <laughs> we were talking about the transitions. I just um, think of that poor. You know, yeah. I, I I haven't seen Robert Pollard in years. Yeah, I yeah, really, yeah. really, really like him. Is he He's in, is so he in New York? smart. He's so funny. I think he lives in Brooklyn. Wow. But I'm not sure. Yeah. And then somebody told me no, he's back in Ohio. Yeah. But I don't know. I don't stay in touch with him. It's not like we're great friends. It's yeah, just like we were hanging out, yeah, and yeah. I had a great time with him. He's so smart. He's yeah. so funny, and obviously so talented. Because you look at like that chasing Heather crazy like that that mm -hmm. track, and then you go to Sister I Need Wine. I mean, that's mm -hmm. almost like an Elliot Smith sort of tone, mm -hmm. like very tonal shift. And then you go to Want One, mm -hmm. and that's almost like a grunge, like Alice in Chains, Stone Temple Pilots. It was incredible, and seeing that, and then all the artists that you worked with. I mean, you worked with. Bo Diddley, uh, mm -hmm. Maureen Tucker, right? Um, well, Bo Diddley's the greatest of them all. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Of way? course he is. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's, he's incredible. Oh, I mean, you know, he built those damn guitars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He puts all the effects in his in the box. Yeah. He figured out how to take shave and a haircut, which we also call the clave rhythm, <laughs> and make a whole style of music out yeah. of it. He played guitar better than anybody. He's a better entertainer and singer. He's a brilliant... He, he's just a tremendous person. Uh, he's he's right up there. He, you know, he and Chuck Berry. Wow. They're the inventors of all this music we call rock music. Yeah. I mean, they're not the only ones, but yeah. the, if it wasn't little, for them. Little Richard, too, right? Little right. Richard. Yeah. And, and, a, and a, you know, he was a great. And there were a lot of greats. You know, Elvis was great. And so was uh, uh, Carl Perkins and Jerry Lee Lewis. Yeah. And, and and before that, Louis Jordan and Winona Harris. These were big right. influences on on. And muddy waters, you know, but but to really what people think of rock music, you know, yeah, that's uh, and right now I'm on a big kick of James Burton. Mm. He's a guitar player for yeah. Elvis during the latter days. The, the the early guitar player was also great. Yeah, but when Elvis had that enormous band that would play Vegas, that was that was James oh, Burton. Like early before 60s. that, he was yeah. playing, like when he was very young, he wrote Susie Q. Oh yeah, yeah, and then uh, so that guy. To me, now that I'm, I have to practice the guitar lately because I'm doing that gig I was talking about. Yeah. You know, I used to play guitar a lot, electric guitar, and I don't play it so much these days. And so, I'm going back to all those James Burton records and going, you know, when people think they're playing rock guitar, yeah, they don't understand how the much influences. of it came from this one person because a lot of the rock guys and women, they don't even know who James Burton is. Yeah. They just know that James's riffs, and they're doing the riffs, and oh, this is a rock riff, it's a traditional yeah. rock riff. Yeah. Man, no, that was invented by James. Another guy, T-Bone Walker. Yeah, yeah. I think if you took T-Bone and James Burton, and then you take every punk guitar player, every hardcore player, every, you know, buddy who says, I'm going back to the roots and playing yeah. rock, they're, they're, I'm going to play rock and roll again, you know, well, Chuck Berry somewhat yeah. too, of course, even Les Paul a little bit, but saying, Really, a lot. T Bone Walker, mm -hmm. and, and and Chuck Berry, and James Burton. That's where it comes from. And they're playing all these riffs, and they don't know where they come from. They came from James Burton. Wow. So James got his riffs from other people too, mm -hmm. but he's the one that figured out how to put them together. Yeah. And and make this thing that people think of as rock and roll guitar. Yeah. At, at least that's my opinion. Doesn't mean that there haven't been a million great rock players who 
took that and, yeah, and went further and, yeah. and did their own thing. Roots, yeah. In the same way that he came out of Merle Travis and Les Paul yeah. and and Charlie Christian, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. But uh, yeah, James Burton, that's a deep, deep, deep player. And that same time I, I mentioned very briefly, I got to have breakfast for two hours with Sam mm -hmm. Phillips. Right. The other guy was James Burton. Wow. So I got to hang for two hours. With, it's the only time I got to hang with uh, the fellow that recorded all the great early rock, you know, Carl Perkins and yeah. Elvis and Jerry Lee and all those people. And I knew James Burton was a great player. I knew him from like the Emmy Lou Harris records and oh, stuff yeah, like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, wow. He was the guitar player on those records. Huh. And then, uh, but I didn't really know how deep he was. And now I think back on it. He's still alive. But I'm wow. going like, man, I was hanging out with the guy that's like, I don't know, not just one of my biggest influences, yeah. but everybody's influence. Yeah. And I didn't know it. For one thing, he's not a braggart. Mm -hmm. He's just this kind of kind funny he's not like Carol nice yeah he, yeah, he doesn't talk or sit around talking about yeah. how great he is yeah. he, he just he just has a conversation he's a yeah. same trip I met Priscilla Presley oh, exactly wow. the same huh. you would think oh yeah she's got to be you know yeah, no no, no 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 she's great she's warm she, you have a direct conversation with her just you know so it is great to see that some people are able to cast off all the nonsense that they get about you know being a public persona and they're just like real people and yeah. not not constantly on yeah. you know not constantly worried about their own myth or something like that so uh, yeah. yeah James Burton's one of them. Sam Sam I didn't get that feeling but but Sam Phillips was just he was so smart hmm. he was so smart yeah. he would have been a great physicist or biologist oh, really? or anything yeah yeah, yeah. he just instead he decided he wanted to record great music and specifically he was really into civil rights yeah. and he really wanted african-american music to be to Stoller, be really yeah. well yeah it's kind of well Liebert Stoller yeah. wrote he, what did they they wrote Hound Dog oh, yeah. so they That's wrote right. in a way they wrote the first I guess you know, super big hit in a way, yeah, I guess, yeah. in in rock in rock and roll. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to end. Uh, really, really appreciate it, you know, speaking with you again. I mean, thanks for having me here. Well, and thanks, then, John. You know, I appreciate that you've been doing all this reading and stuff, but I'm really amazed that you know uh, so much about the the history of, no, of American music. That's really interesting. Yeah, and we didn't necessarily get to talk a little bit about, um, you know, your your incredible research and all those interests and all the publications that I've read, but I just want to say that, um, you know, all the work that you've done for Parkinson's disease, uh, Alzheimer's, um, and Huntington's, I think it's incredible, uh, and also um, addiction as well. So thanks for all of that. Um, oh, thank you. And, uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. I hope it. we can keep it going. Yeah. <laughs> it's not always the easiest stuff to do, as you know. Yeah. Since you're in the field, but we're 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 giving it a shot. We're trying as hard as yeah, we're doing able incredible. to. Incredible! So thank you so much for all your work. Well, thank you, John. Mm -hmm.